So we will pick up on page 10 of those notes, looking at and filling in this chart that is the substance of the series. I'll explain that in a bit. But before we get started, I want to remind you of things that are coming up. Tonight at 6 o'clock is the first session of the Marriage Oneness series. And we need to know before you leave today if you are planning to attend and need child care. We don't need to know that you're just planning to attend, but if you need child care, we need to know that. And we need to know that before you leave. You can let us know that by going to the Resource Center, which is out the back door and across the hallway. And we have a kiosk there. And you can indicate there how many children you need help uh, for child care tonight for the Oneness Marriage Series. And we would encourage all of you, certainly who are married, I know some of you who are single are interested in learning more about marriage for that eventuality in, in your lives. So that's tonight at 6 o'clock uh, here. Each week on Wednesdays, we have our midweek program, and we have ministries for all ages, adults, teens, uh, elementary age kids, nursery toddler for the adult class, Dr. Combs is leading a, a class on church history, church history made made easy. It's been uh, very interesting, I'm told by a number of folks who've been able to attend that, so I'm sure that, that will be the case for you if you're able to come. 7 o'clock every, every Wednesday. This Friday night, men, is the annual men's night at the range. Yeah, it's $25. You can pay that $25 at the Resource Center, and you can uh, do that using the uh, kiosk that we have, uh, have there. Uh, and it in our program, the program you should have received on the way in, it tells you where that's located and all the other details about it. This coming Saturday is the next newcomer's brunch at our house. We have those three or four times a year, so this is the next one. If you've never been to one of the brunches, then consider yourself a newcomer for purposes of the brunch. Even if you've been around CBC for a long time, we would love to have you, but we need to know. And so before you leave today, let us know you're coming, how many you're bringing with you. You can bring your children with you as well. We would love to have them. So go to the desk that's out in the lobby, the information center desk, and let them know. They'll give you an invitation that has a reminder of the date and time and also a map to our house. Just a quickly, a few other things. On March the 16th, we have in the afternoon that day, 1.30 to 3, a ice skating event for everybody in the, in the family. The ice skating is free if you need to rent skates at the Brownstown Sports Center, formerly the um, ice box, uh, then those are three, $3. That's on Saturday the 16th. Our next newcomer's orientation, that's a four-week class that we offer periodically throughout the year, uh, will start on March the 24th, Sunday, March 24th. And uh, the next three Sundays after that, during this second hour, during that time, those four weeks, we'll have men in our church fill in for me. Then we'll have Easter on uh, the 15th of, I believe it's the 15th of April, and then, uh, and then the following Sunday, we'll start a new series in, uh, in this hour. So the newcomer's orientation, if you're new to our church, that's designed to give you information about who we are, where we come from, what we believe, why we do things the way we do. It doesn't obligate you to join the church. We don't hassle you. 
uh, afterwards. We leave it to, to you to prayerfully decide if the information that you received convinces you that this is where God would have you grow and serve. But you do need that information in order to make an informed decision. So plan on attending that. Lastly, the last Sunday in March on the 31st is our next baptism. If you've never been baptized the way the Bible describes, and the way the Bible describes it is by immersion, so that symbolizes the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. If that's never happened with you, then you've never been baptized. If you were sprinkled as a baby, then that's not biblical baptism. And so Jesus requires that those who are his followers show that they are his followers initially by the act of, of baptism. So uh, there's a one-page application for baptism. It's at that desk that's out in the foyer. Ask them for a baptism application. Fill that out. Give it back to them. They'll get it to me. And then we'll go from there. That's uh, March the 31st is our next baptism. So, but Easter's the 21st. Is it that late? Okay, so then the 28th will be... Uh, that following week is when we will start uh, the, the new series. Thank you. All right, we are in the series that you should have notes for, everybody. And you see the title on the front cover of those notes and also on the screen, From Self-Help to God's Help. I've been emphasizing in the first several weeks of the series that God wants us to change. God is in the change business. So if you are a Christian and a follower of Christ, then change should be the norm. For you and for me. God does not expect that any of us would remain stagnant in our our Christian walk. God's in the change business because God made us to reflect him back to him. God made us in his image. And the Bible teaches that sin has distorted that image. Therefore, change is required on a regular basis. The mirrors that we were made to be to reflect the character of God back to him are now broken mirrors. And the cracks in those mirrors need to be repaired on a regular basis so that when God looks at us, he sees a clearer and clearer and clearer view of himself. So God is in the change business for good reason, because God made us to reflect him back to him, and we don't. And until the day that we are glorified, that is, we perfectly reflect him back to him, until that time, then change will be ever necessary. And it should be desirable on the part of God's people because we indeed want to please God and we do want to be conformed to the image of Christ. So God wants us to change. It's what the biblical term sanctified sanctification is all about being gradually set apart from the world and unto and unto God. And I said last week that failure to change as God desires is due to failure to respond as we should. Failure for us to change as God desires is due to a failure on our part to respond as we should. Now respond to what? Respond to what's going on. That's what. Respond to your stuff. Respond to your situation. Respond to your, in the words of the, on page 10, the chart, and on the screen, the chart that we've been using, at the top middle, the heat of life. The heat of life. And we've described that heat in some detail, and it takes all sizes and shapes, but living in a fallen world means that all of us 
have in our circumstances things that go not to our not to our liking that that come upon us that press upon us and then we are responsible to respond we have respond the responsibility to respond as god desires in order for god to achieve the change that he wants in the midst of the situation so you could think of the word responsibility as the ability to respond. You have response ability. You have the ability to respond differently than we so often do. So failure to change as God desires is due to failure to respond as we should. Now, why don't we respond as we should? Now, we could just say, and we would be correct if we said that's because of sin. But let's break down how sin looks in our lives. It looks very often like this. That I've got expectations in my life that are not being realized. And because those expectations that I have are not being realized, I'm not happy with my life. And so we say derogatory things about our lives. My so-called life. Right? Things like that. Or my life fill in the blank, some derogatory term. And that's because we're in the midst of the heat and the situation, it's not meeting our expectations. And so I said to you, expectations minus reality equals trouble. What I want to happen and what I expected to happen minus what's really happening results in me not responding in proper ways. Instead, I get frustrated, I become depressed, I get angry, Irritable, all sorts of all sorts of things. And those unmet expectations, and then our response to that gap between the expectations and the reality, cause us to respond in ways that actually make a bad situation worse. And so now you look on the chart again, both on the screen and in front of you. You've got the heat of life, you've got the situation, but now there's how I respond, and because we very often respond in ways that make a bad situation worse, it results in, right side of that chart, that kind of life. Not terribly attractive. But that is an accurate representation of our lives, certainly our lives at times, and often our lives at many times. That we have thornbush responses that yield bad fruit in in our lives. So expectations minus reality equals trouble. These unmet expectations then can cause us to respond in ways that make a bad situation worse. Think think about one example of these unmet expectations. Expectations minus reality equals trouble. You, you all have heard of the condition called midlife crisis. Midlife crisis. Now, I don't know exactly when midlife is supposed to to start, 40, 45, I don't know. I do know I'm past it. I know that much. But, you know, whether it's 35, 40, 45, I have long believed that midlife crisis starts in your teens or early 20s. And here's what I mean by that. The roots of what become what we call midlife crisis actually start with the expectations you had about the way it was going to go. And you start to develop those early on in your life. They may be spoken. They may be unspoken. 
You may just have them in the recesses of your mind, but you have these expectations. And now you get to 35, you get to 40, you get to 45, and it ain't happening. Well, why midlife? Why would midlife be the time in which that starts to crash in? Well, well, I think here's why. Because you're now at such an age that the reality sets in that this trajectory, I don't have time for this trajectory to change much. What I'm on right now is going to be the way it is in all likelihood going forward. And so when people realize that, they now say, my life, nothing turned out the way I thought it was going to turn out. Or many things didn't turn out the way I thought they were going to turn out. And so I'm now in midlife, midlife crisis. We have a book in our resource center by Paul Tripp called Lost in the Middle. And it's about this. It's about midlife crisis. But also about the expectations that we bring to it that in turn, that in turn cause that. These unmet expectations cause us to respond in ways that make a bad situation worse. So what should we do? We must align our expectations to the realities that we cannot change. You see, you've got these two things. You've got the expectation and you've got reality. Now, which of those can you change? Sometimes you can change your reality. Sometimes you can change what's really going on. If your job, your career is not to your liking, you might be able to change it. If you can change it, do it. That's all fine. But very often in a fallen world, this piece can't be changed. You're in a marriage, unless there is a biblical justification for getting out of that marriage, and there are only a couple of those, adultery and abandonment. If you don't have that, then you're in that marriage. So you can't change that reality. So you can't adjust that. What about your health? You may have health issues that are chronic, that are going to be with you for the rest of your life. You're not going to be able to change those. Expectations, reality, but I can't change the reality. What can I change? I can change the expectations. We saw last week someone in Scripture. There are other examples, but the Apostle Paul is a tremendous one, especially in Philippians chapter 4, when he is able to say in the circumstances in which he finds himself, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Be joyful always. And then we saw last week that you go down to verse 10 and verse 11, verse 12. He says, I have learned to be content in any and every situation, where whether well-fed or hungry, whether in plenty or in want. And he says in verse 13, I can do all things but I can do them. I can do all those things, namely in the context, be content and have joy in the midst of my heat through Christ who gives me strength. Now, what circumstances was Paul in when he made that statement? He was chained to a Roman guard. He was under house arrest and he had done nothing wrong other than he was preaching the gospel. So, friends, this is the Bible's approach then to our heat and our response to it. But when we respond to our lives and what we don't like about our lives, because it has not met our expectations in, in, in ways other than God desires, it creates this thornbush kind of, kind of life. So here's what we do. Instead of re-examining our expectations, Instead of re-examining our values, instead of re-examining our wants and desires, instead of doing a heart check, a spiritual 
inside internal heart check. Instead of doing that, which is what I just described, analyzing your expectations, your values, your wants, your desires, that's all doing an inside check, an internal check. Instead of doing that, where do we look? Rather than looking inwardly, we look outwardly. And we look at all the things that went wrong. And we look at all the people who might have contributed to making those things go wrong. And so our focus, instead of being that God is in the heat, God's in the situation, God is doing something in the situation. And in fact, God's doing something good in the situation. Instead of that, I spend my time thinking about and mourning the fact that I have had things go in a way that I didn't want. People who contributed to those things going in ways I didn't want. If those people are still in your life, especially. If they're with you every day. If you live with them. You work with them. If they're, if they're in your life still, then you're thinking about that all the time. And if I could get rid of these people. Or if I could just, I don't need to get rid of them. I don't mean like kill them. Probably, you know. Although, right? That's how, isn't that how that happens though? I mean, you hear about somebody getting rid of, boy, they were such a happy couple. You see Dateline, and you go, wow, how, and the neighbors are all like, how did, that, how did that happen? Well, it was because this person was in the way of something the other person wanted. And they plotted to get rid of the, the person. So, uh, yeah, it could, it could come to that. But I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. You're not plotting murder. Okay? <laughs> but, you're, but you're dissatisfied with it. You're dissatisfied with these people and what they're doing. And, and your focus and... Very often your almost constant focus is upon them and what they need to do. I would encourage you to just analyze the language of your mind as often as you can. Analyze the language of your mind. See, sometimes you don't speak it. That's why I say the language of your mind. Analyze what you're thinking. And analyze how often what you're thinking is focused on other people is focused outside of you. And then if you do commit it to writing, if you send emails to people, I get emails from people a lot. It's amazing how often people's problems, when they're written down, actually name everybody and everything except them. So they immediately start going to, here's what's going on with this person in my life and this person in my life and this person in my life. And all of that may well be true. But focusing outside of yourself is never going to, hear this friends, is never going to get you to reanalyze the expectations, the values, the wants, and the desires that God wants reoriented toward him. So instead of focusing on changing others or our situation, What we should do is focus on changing. All right. So I've said that. And everything I just said is true. But it's hard. I mean, if it were easy, I wouldn't have to keep saying it. And the Bible wouldn't have to keep saying it. And you and I would not find ourselves regularly failing at it. But we find ourselves failing at it a lot. So 
So why do I keep reacting with thornbush kinds of responses? Why do I keep sinning in my responses? Why does a parent get so upset when a child won't do the household chores that they lose it? Why does a man or woman succumb to sexual overtures of a coworker? Why do teenagers become depressed when their so-called friends snub them? Why do we do the things that we do? And that's what we're going to have to analyze if we're going to stop doing the thornbush responses. We're going to have to do an internal analysis like a doctor diagnosing what is wrong and diagnosing accurately what's wrong is going to determine what we think the cure is. You go to a medical doctor, if they diagnose an infection, they'll probably prescribe an antibiotic. If they diagnose cancer, probably radiation or chemotherapy. But the cure only works if the diagnosis is correct. If the diagnosis is wrong, then the cure may lead to painful, even deadly consequences. And when it comes to our spiritual care, Misdiagnosing a personal problem can have deadly consequences. In the early stages, things might go just fine, but over time, the situation worsens. So think about this example from Joe and Mary, a married couple. They've been married for 22 years. During that time, Mary has become increasingly overwhelmed and exhausted. Mary was married, she found out, after the first few years of their marriage, that she had married an angry man. Joe didn't exhibit that kind of behavior before they were married, but something changed almost immediately. On their honeymoon, he blew up at her for the first time. It wasn't pleasant, but Mary wrote it off as a momentary lapse due to the pressure of the wedding. A few weeks later, he did the same thing, becoming loud and nasty when he came home one night to a cold dinner. This was the beginning of 22 years of him losing it on a regular basis. The children learned to anticipate Joe's blow-ups. They'd also grown fearful and bitter. Twenty-two years later, despite intervention by pastors and counselors, their families in shambles, Joe and Mary are at the end of their ropes. But they continue to seek help. The marriage is now suffering from an angry husband and a fearful and bitter wife. I am not a betting man. I would be willing to wager, though, if I were, that what we just described here is true of more than one family represented in this room. Now, to Joe's credit, he sought help over the years. But his diagnosis and the diagnosis that others gave him didn't go deep enough. They made suggested solutions that were insufficient for lasting change. There were times when he would be patient, but it never lasted. Now he had pretty much given up and he resigned himself to where he was, but it didn't change the fact that his sin hurt others. These thorny responses to life are that way. When your life is looking like that, then it's going to affect the people, the people around you. The diagnoses and the cures offered to Joe over the years had proven ineffective to bringing real change. So let's think about some of the ways a guy like Joe or you or me And we have our struggle, whatever it is. Anger is only one. But we've got this regular struggle or struggles and how it is that we normally think about them. I said we should analyze, evaluate the thinking that goes on in our, uh, the words we speak in our minds. 
Well, what do we think in our minds, at least, if not putting them down in writing and actually verbalizing them? What's the real problem? Well, we think the real problem is other people. That's one. The real problem is other people. In the case of Joe, in a marriage like Joe and Mary's, he's become convinced he married the wrong person. Mary is, is cold. She avoids talking to them, to him very much. He never feels like she's 100% into the marriage. She's spontaneous and she's unorganized. He concluded that his anger would stop if she would stop avoiding him, do a better job of keeping the house in order. That would eliminate his anger problem. That's what Mary had tried to do for two decades. There were times when the demands of then parenting kept her from being able to get the housework done. He'd get agitated. Eventually he'd complain about her lack of organization. And it was true. She wasn't as organized as he was. So she lived with this gnawing sense of guilt and failure whenever he got angry. She'd redouble her efforts to be conscientious about the housework, especially when he told her he'd be a nicer person if she could stay on top of that. He also told her she needed to get better at resolving conflict. Because she didn't open up, then because she was bottling up, that was a big part of the problem. And then they would go to counselors, they would go to pastors even, and they would contribute to this false diagnosis. By saying, you know, if you would just get it together a little bit better. They wouldn't say it that way. But we'll get some people from the church to help you out. You're overwhelmed. You've got a lot of parenting responsibilities. This is not your forte. Let's get some people from the church to help you become more organized. Because then that'll that'll help Joe. With this couple, that actually happened. But it didn't actually cure Joe. Because that actually wasn't the root problem. Joe found other things to get angry about. And so that's one way that we go about diagnosing the problem. We focus on other people, other people in our lives. Now, you may be focused on somebody else. In fact, what I just described may be your husband. And you're going, man, am I glad I went to church today. More important, am I glad he went to church today. So he could hear that everything I've been telling him is correct. Because pastor just said it. That's you. You're Joe. Your name is not Joe, but you're Joe. But you see, you're doing the same thing when you do that. Because you're not asking as you sit there, Lord, how do you want to change me in the midst of my relationship with my Joe? So I and my wife, my wife and I have had the privilege over a lot of years now to talk to a lot of people, couples, individuals, For a lot of years, that used to happen in our home. And it used to happen in our home partly because I didn't have an office. (laughs) We've only been in this building a little over five years. And for about 12 years, I was kind of a mobile ministry. And so we had counseling, and especially when it was with a female, I don't meet with females alone, we would meet meet at our house. Kim has been then a part of these counseling sessions. And as I would go through listening to someone's issue and then diagnosing that and then trying to show them how God desires to work in their life. Uh, Kim is just, she would contribute and she would contribute very helpfully, but she would often just be listening. And then we were done, she would come to me and very often emotional. And she would say, I just saw so many things about myself and what you were saying. 
Now, the truth is, I didn't think there was anything that I had said that applied to her. But I'm embarrassing her to say that there's a difference between a sensitive heart who wants to change regularly and somebody who has a desensitized heart who wants other people to change regularly. And that's an example of that. And so when a a woman would come and she would talk about what a crumb of a husband she has, and then I would try to help her with that. And, you know, Kim was thinking about our relationship and, you know, her part in our relationship and all of that. And she would come and do like I said. And then she would come and hug me and she would be reminded about how wonderful I am. (laughs) Compared to the guy that was just described. So I kind of hate it that we don't do that as much as we used to. Because she always appreciated me all the more when we got when we got done with those. But I, but I say that to say, do you see, dear friends, that we will have thornbush responses if, even if you're living with a Joe or a Jane as a husband that is a, a real trial for you in the way they behave, if you are focused on them rather than practicing focusing on yourself. So one failure to diagnose properly is to look at other people. Another one is to focus on family of origin. Family of origin. That's actually a term used in psychology, family of origin. And it looks back into your past, and it wants to know how you're being affected in the present by things that happened in the past. Now, certainly, and and I'm an advocate of trying to find those things out so that we can identify exactly how it is we are reacting wrongly often to things that have been done wrong to us, perhaps in the past. So there's no problem with trying to identify those things. The problem is with confusing those things as the cause of our sin problems. Hear this. There's a difference between something being the occasion of your response versus being the cause of your response. There's something that can trigger a response. There's something that is the context of your particular response, but it's still not the cause of that response. So in the case of an angry guy like Joe, Joe could tell you stories about how his dad treated him. And he's carried that anger at his dad with him throughout his life. It's now come into his marriage, and it's now showing up in a number of of ways. Now, that's all true. We take him at his word that his dad treated him this way. And it is also true that if, in fact, that happened, that that's a form of suffering that the Bible describes. And then as a Christian listening to that, then we are called to be compassionate toward that and to hear that and to evaluate that. But in no case should we allow Joe to make that the cause of his responses. It's the occasion of his responses. And if we do then we are going to continue to buy into Joe continuing to look outside of himself to someone else and experiences in the past for what he's doing in the present. Or, here's another. So there's other people, there's family of origin, past experiences. There, I just, I had a bad day. I had a bad day at work. We're low on money, so that's putting pressure on me. Uh, The traffic was crazy. Somebody cut me off uh, at a turn, and that just set me off. You know, there's a number of things that just happened today that just pushed my buttons. 
A number of you have heard me say over the years that you know what those buttons are attached to. They're attached to your heart, according to the Bible. You see, the reason that those buttons can have the effect that they have on you is because they are attached to desires, expectations, wants, values that you have in your heart that aren't happening. At the moment those things don't happen, then that button gets pushed and you get this reaction. So you say, someone pushes my buttons or whenever that happens, it pushes my buttons. Remember, your buttons, according to the Bible, are attached to your, attached to your heart. And then another one that we can use to focus outside of ourselves is, you know, my body made me do it. I haven't been getting enough sleep. I haven't been eating right and so on. Now, those things can contribute to how we're, how we're feeling. But when we sin in our reactions to what's going on, again, it's the occasion. It is not, it is not the cause. So friends, what do you think your biggest problem is? With all of that, what's your biggest problem that's leading to a thornbush kind of life? And I've said enough that I hope you will at least think twice before you put somebody else's name to it. Or before you put some situation to it. Instead of doing that, what you should put to it is that I am not sufficiently focused on my God in my heart, so that he can make the changes in me that he desires within the heat that he's assigned to me. Instead of focusing on the name of somebody else or a label for a particular situation, what we should, and we're going to see this in Scripture in just a moment, what we should focus on is that my heart is not sufficiently attuned to the true and living God, such that I am asking and desirous of what changes, Lord, do you want to make in me, in the heat, in the situation, in the circumstance that a sovereign God has assigned to me. Now, why do I say that? Look at your notes on page 11. Page 11, you have Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5 is the second giving of the, the Ten Commandments. In fact, did you know the the name of the book, Deuteronomy, namas is Greek for, for law, and deutero means two or twice, second. So Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. The first was in Exodus chapter, Exodus chapter 20. So here you have a restatement of the law and a restatement of the law as God prepares his people to go into the promised land. They have now done their sojourn in the wilderness for 40 years. They've shown their hearts during that 40-year wilderness wandering. We saw some of that from the book of Numbers a couple of weeks ago. But now they are there and now they are going to enter the promised land. And now God is restating the Ten Commandments in order to prepare them for going into the promised land. He gave them the law when they started their wandering in the wilderness. Now he's giving them the law when they go into the promised land. And I want you to note, page 11, Deuteronomy 5 listed for you there. Here's how he starts out. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, how does God start? God starts with God. 
How does the Bible start? With God. In the beginning, God. But that's not where we often start, is it? We don't start with God. We think about us. We think about how it's gone wrong for us. We think about the expectations not being met. We think about other people. But we don't start with God. God starts with God. I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then he gives the commands. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first. Then he gives the second. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven, above, or on earth, beneath, or in the waters below. And he goes on to give instruction about that. Verse 11. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now notice. Ten commandments and the first three are focused on who? Right? And they're getting ready to go into the promised land and God is reminding them that life is about me. And life is to be focused on me. And when you are, now to bring it to us, when you're having thornbush responses, it's because you've replaced allegiance to God to allegiance to someone or something else. And actually, the Ten Commandments show us that. Because you have the first three commandments are are focused on God. But then if you look at commandments 4 through 10... Failure to keep those other seven commandments always are because of a failure to keep the first three. Whenever we fail to keep any of the other commandments, it's because we've already failed to keep our allegiance toward God. So let me remind you that commandment number four is remember the Sabbath. And at the heart of that fourth commandment is a call to honor and obey God in our worship, in our work, and in our rest. But if commands one through three are broken, then I worship and serve myself and I use my time for my own interest. Commandment five, honor your father and your mother. At the heart of that commandment, it's a call to honor and obey God by respecting those in authority. But when commands one through three are broken, broken, my will and honor become primary. Commandment number six, do not murder. At the heart of that is a call to honor and obey God by loving, serving, and forgiving others. But when one through three are broken, I demand to be loved and served by others. And when I'm wrong, I demand revenge. Commandment seven, do not commit adultery. At the heart of that is a call to honor and obey God by remaining sexually pure and keeping my promises to others. But when one through three are broken, my pleasures rule. Do not steal. At the heart of that is a command to obey God by freely and joyfully sharing my resources with others. But when commands one through three are broken, I want for myself Do not bear false witness. That's telling us to honor and obey God by speaking truthfully in ways that build others up. But when I break one through three, my words are used to make me look good and you look bad. Lastly, do not covet. At the heart of that 10th commandment is a call to rejoice in the blessings of others. But when one through three are broken, I want what you have and I don't want you to have it. Do you guys see that? Now, look back on page 11. It starts with God. It's centered on God. And when we fail to see that, which we regularly do, and we focus on ourselves and and what hasn't happened the way we want, and then we focus outside of ourselves to blame our circumstances and those in those circumstances for not providing it, when we move God out of the picture, middle of page 11, Romans chapter 1 and verse 25. 
They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now notice this. And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So here's what's happened. This is the heart of sin. It's taking someone or something else and making that more ultimate than God. It's called idolatry. It's idolatry of the heart. When I take someone or something else and I make it more ultimate than God. So think of it this way. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. Even a good thing. When it becomes an ultimate thing, it's now a bad thing, namely an idol. Let's think about a few of these quickly. A father who wants his child to honor and obey him so that when he grows up, he'll not be hostile to those in authority. That's a good desire. It's something God commands. But when that desire for respectful children becomes his father's ultimate goal, it becomes his functional God. It leads him to manipulate his son to get him to obey. He may become very controlling, exploding in anger when the child steps out of line. He may become depressed by any failure of his son or self-righteous, proud, and condescending toward parents whose children are less obedient. So that's a good thing to want this respect, isn't it? But when that good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. It becomes a bad thing. Or a young man longs to find a spouse. That's a good thing. He reasons that marriage is something that God created, therefore it's a good desire. But he goes to extremes in his relationships with women. When they ignore him, he becomes depressed and susceptible to sexual temptation. When he does attract a woman's interest, he destroys the relationship by smothering her with too much attention. It's a good thing to want to pursue relationships, to want to pursue marriage. When it becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. One other A woman is gifted and successful in her job. She recognizes work as a good thing that God has made. It's a way to use her gifts and her experience so that she can have a sense of dignity in the service of others. But over time, this woman finds herself increasingly anxious about whether she's doing everything she needs to do. She starts taking work home. She assumes too many responsibilities. And soon she has trouble sleeping. A good thing, work, becomes a bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. Now, how are you going to know whether you've slipped into this? we got to quit. But David Paulison has a list of 34 x-ray questions. 34. Why 34? I don't know. Why Couldn't he come up with another one and round it off at 35? Couldn't he eclipse it at 30, but it's 34. 34 x-ray questions. They're x-ray questions because they are questions designed to get at what's going on in your heart. What do you want? What do you expect? What do you desire? Where is your allegiance? He's got 34 of them. And I have got about 40 copies of that out on the information center desk. He's got 13 pages. He's got those 34 x-ray questions. He's got some explanation before and after Everything David Paulison writes is gold. And that thing is gold as well. So I would encourage you couples to pick up a copy before you leave. 
and to look at that this coming week in preparation for next week as we start to go toward the bottom of the chart now, starting next week, moving from our thornbush reactions to see how the cross and understanding God's work in our lives through Christ can cause us to have different reactions that result in a fruit tree life rather than a thornbush life. So those copies are out there. If we run out, we'll make more and we'll have those available uh, next week. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for these dear brothers and sisters and friends who have come to hear your truth about your desire to see us become like you. But Lord, we are far off from that, every one of us. Every one of us still struggles with the vestiges of sin, even after having coming to come to you in salvation. And Lord, we each have characteristic sins and characteristic struggles that are different for each of us because we do indeed have different families of origin. We do indeed have different heat that's come to bear upon our lives. And so because we are different, our sin manifests itself differently. Lord, it all amounts to the same root, your word tells us, that we have hearts that are easily drawn away from you and toward other persons and other things. Those other persons and other things may be good, but when they become ultimate, they become idolatrous. And so, Lord, help me to be constantly reminded, help us to be reminded that we are at heart adulterous and idolatrous people. We wander from our first love to something lesser, to someone lesser, because our hearts are easily drawn astray. And Lord, because we desire to please you, ignite that desire in us to motivate us to then take action, to analyze what's happening in our hearts and what we expect and want and desire and to what we give our allegiance. Help us to use these questions that our dear brother has put together for us to analyze our own hearts so that we can make changes that are not superficial but truly get to the heart of the matter. May we start to implement these this week. May we begin to see fruit this week. And help us in these final weeks as we see how your work, your work through the Lord Jesus Christ produces lasting change in us. Go with us this week. Grant us safety. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.